Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading in Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scorned Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 15. Uh, we are back in the Gospel of Mark um, to kind of... Well, before we dive into that, uh, I want to make an announcement, let you know about something. Um, uh, ladies in the room, um, one of the things as a church that we feel passionate about is equipping you, not just ladies, everyone, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, equipping men and equipping women uh, to follow Jesus in their homes, in their marriages, in their lives, in their work. Uh, and so periodically we have these equipping kind of moments where we want to, uh, in a particular way, with a particular group of people, work and aim towards equipping you uh, to, to, to love Jesus more deeply, delight in him more fully, follow him more faithfully. And so on February 24th, we're having a women's equipping brunch at 10 a.m. Uh, later this evening, there will be a link in the Church Center app where you can go and sign up for that event. It's totally free. Uh, it's, a, it's a women's equipping brunch, February 24th, 10 a.m. So ladies, if you are available, I want to encourage you to make a priority to be there. Husbands, great moment to serve your wives by prioritizing their discipleship and taking a hold of your children for that evening or that morning uh, so that you can your wife can be there. Um, so I want to encourage you ladies to be there for that equipping brunch. It'll be a good time to connect with one another, to shape and sharpen one another. Uh, some teaching will be done in that moment uh, by one of our ladies. Uh, to help equip you. So, so there's that announcement. It'll be up on Church Center for you to sign up this week and the following weeks, but February 24th on that Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Um, if you have a Bible, again, open it up to Mark chapter 15. We are back in the Gospel of Mark. Our regular rhythm and pattern at Trailview Church is to teach and walk through books of the Bible. Periodically in seasons, we take breaks from that uh, because of regular seasons. And so uh, we, we've been carrying on through the Gospel of Mark during the fall. I know it's not fall. Uh, during the fall, uh, every single year since we planted Trailview. So we started in September 2020 with Mark chapter 1, and then we get to Advent every year and we take a break. And we do Advent things, 
celebrating and remembering and rehearsing the story of redemption. And then in the spring, we typically do something else. But we only have a little bit left in the Gospel of Mark. So instead of waiting till the fall, uh, after we went through Advent, walked through the beginning of the year around the spiritual disciplines, those first four weeks about uh, prayer, Bible reading, the essential nature of the community, and gathering as essential for uh, the life of a Christian, uh, those last four weeks, uh, go listen to those if you haven't, um, uh, on our podcast. They're really good, really helpful, really equipping, really stirring, nurturing for your soul. Uh, we're back in the Gospel of Mark for these last couple chapters in Mark. Mark chapter 15. So, uh, so to catch us up where we're at, we enter a very uh, scandalous moment uh, of injustice in the story of the gospel. A very scandalous moment of injustice in the gospel. Uh, and so uh, for, think about it in this way. H- have you ever been in a situation to where you were accused of doing something that you did not do? And it seemed like there was nothing you could do to convince the person who was accusing you that you actually didn't do it. Maybe it was when you were a child and your parents, doing the best that they could, assumed you did something that you didn't do. Uh, maybe one of your siblings did it. Uh, or maybe uh, it just happened somehow and it wasn't you. Uh, and, and there's this sense inside of you of, no, it is wrong for you to tell me I did something that I did not do. Like, I feel personally wronged that you would accuse me, that you would say I did something that I didn't do. I can think of moments as a father um, with my own kids where uh, one of my children, uh, this is a particularly uh, real thing, they feel very deep, a strong sense of justice to where uh, they have been or found themselves like literally in tears because they've been accused by another kid or another adult or by their own parents of doing something that they didn't do. And there's this like, no, 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 I didn't do anything. I didn't do that. I didn't hit her. I didn't say that about him. I didn't take that. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Uh, and, and there's this deep inside horrible conflict going on, uh, uh, this sense of injustice. I'm being accused of something that I did not do. It feels at its very core morally wrong. It feels at its very core disgusting, like it causes disgust inside of us, and it's gross. When someone is innocent, have done nothing wrong, but they're called guilty. They're treated as if they're guilty. You see, this week, as we continue telling the Gospel of Mark, we get to a point in the story where this horrible scandal of injustice takes place. This horrible moment of injustice, the worst moment of injustice in all of history plays out and takes place. And so to catch us up in the Gospel of Mark, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark aiming at one thing, what this says right here, to behold the King, to behold Jesus our King. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, we, with because of the Gospel, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed. And so our whole aim in the now going on three years of walking through the Gospel of Mark uh, is to see Jesus, our King. And when we see Him, Him transform who we are. Him change us from the inside out. And so, to catch us up, Jesus has done a whole bunch of ministry, a whole bunch of miracles, a whole bunch of teaching, uh, and it leads him to taking Passover with his disciples, instituting the Lord's Supper, going off to pray in the garden, and then a mob shows up led by the priest and the temple guards to arrest Jesus with clubs and swords. Uh, there's the whole sword fight moment that's not really a sword fight. Peter pulls out a sword, slices off a guy's ear. Uh, he says, stop. 
heals the guy's ear miraculously. Uh, they all fall down when he declares he's Jesus, and then he lets them take him. He's delivered over. Uh, he, he lets them take him captive, and the disciples all run away. Later on, Peter follows and is kind of watching from the garden or from the courtyard. And so we get here today where they at night have already done their own trial of Jesus. They've already found him guilty of, uh, of blasphemy, of claiming to be the Messiah, of claiming to be God. Uh, and the story goes on because the Jewish leaders don't have the power or authority to actually kill someone, which is their whole aim. They want to kill Jesus. They've wanted to kill him for a while. They've sought to trap him, catch him, and, and, and ensnare him so that they could kill him. Uh, but they don't have the power and authority because of Rome to actually kill Jesus. So in order for them to execute their plan of killing Jesus, of executing him, they have to take him before the Roman government led by Pilate in Judea, and then Herod comes into the story, uh, and they have to deem them guilty so that the Romans can do the job of executing this criminal. And so Jesus is on trial this, this morning as we continue through the story. And so as the story starts, I'm going to walk through this and kind of tell it along the way, and just to kind of fill you in, uh, uh, we're going to walk through this passage, Mark 15, 1 through 15, and then periodically, I'm going to jump over and kind of clue us into some other details that Matthew and Luke and John don't or include that Mark doesn't. As we've seen uh, throughout the story of Mark, Mark is pretty concise. He uses the word immediately a lot. Everything's really action-packed. He's pretty cut and dry, short to the point, and concise. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that take place that Mark doesn't say. Uh, well, the way that we've talked about this isn't that Mark is wrong or there's some error in his gospel, but imagine you and three friends go see a movie, and then afterwards you all write about what the movie was. You'd all tell the same story, but you might emphasize something a little bit differently than the other person did because there's uh, somebody you're writing the letter to that means like, hey, this will mean a lot to this person. Or there's something significant that spoke to you in this moment that you want to really emphasize. And so there's aspects of this trial moment before Pilate that, that Mark and Luke and Matthew and John emphasize that are different. And so I'm going to pop in and lead, look a little bit at those other gospel tellings this moment and get us back into Mark as we walk through. So as the story goes, it starts in verse 1 like this. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we have Jesus who we saw uh, nine weeks ago, <laughs> he willingly let them take him. He, he goes with them uh, with armed men, uh, with clubs and swords. He goes with them, and, and he's tried by them in their council. Uh, but now we see them uh, wait till the morning light comes, and they actually got to take Jesus before the Roman judge to be declared guilty so that they can see him crucified. And so they treat Jesus like a criminal. Criminal. They literally bound him. We don't know if it's with shackles or with ropes, but they literally like tie Jesus's hands. We don't know if it's front or back, but they treat him like a criminal. And then they lead him in the morning hours when people are bustling, they're opening up their shops in the marketplace. They're they're on their way back from getting water. They wait till morning to where they can take him to Pilate, and they parade Jesus to Pilate like a criminal. They treat him like a criminal. They do this to show uh, in a very uh, dramatic form, Jesus didn't need to be tied. They could have just walked. He wasn't going anywhere. He gave himself into their hands. He didn't 
argue with them in their trials, uh, but they treated him like a criminal. They, they, they bound his hands and they led him as if they were innocent, as if they were righteous and he is the one that's done wrong. They led him to Pilate. And they accused him of many things. They take him to Pilate and they accuse him of all kinds of things. Uh, Luke 23.2 tells us, And they began before Pilate to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. There's lots of things they accuse Jesus of, but up there at the very top of it is this. This man's saying he's the king, not Caesar. And Caesar's our king, because Rome is our government. And so that's their accusation, that he is misleading, that he is causing insurrection, that he is stirring people up against Caesar, that he's declared himself to be the king and not Caesar. And so they make these accusations of Jesus. And so Jesus, now in the custody of Pilate, uh, gets questioned. Pilate takes him into his quarters, and he begins to question him. And we know along the way, some of the religious leaders are there for this, some of the Pharisees and scribes and, and high priests. And it says in verse 2, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus had no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. So Pilate brings Jesus in and he begins to question him. Their accusation is, you call yourself a king. Are you in fact the king? Are you in fact the king of the Jewish people? Or are you the king? And Jesus says, you say so. You said I'm a king? Must be a king. You say so. And so he, he doesn't disagree. Uh, he doesn't make a proper declaration. He just concedes to this statement by Pilate that he's the king. And, and along the way, these questions get more ornate. John goes into a lot of detail about the kinds of questions and the conversation that they have. Uh, and in John 19, verse 10, it says, this, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? I can let you go scot-free, or I can put you to death. And you won't even talk to me? You won't even have a conversation? You won't provide any evidence of your defense that you haven't said these things? You aren't guilty of these things? In verse 11, And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to, me, given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is a powerful moment where Pilate's like, I have the power to kill you or let you go. Are you not going to answer me? And Jesus says, you only have the authority that my Father has given you. You don't have the authority to kill me unless my Father's will is for me to die. You only have the authority that has been given to you by God. So the authority of God is over Pilate in this moment. And there's another interesting moment when Jesus is being questioned before Pilate where Pilate's wife has this, uh, this supernatural, miraculous thing go on. In Matthew 27, 19, while this is happening, uh, it, maybe it was the night before, or, or maybe she's just, she sleeps in, I don't know. Uh, in verse uh, 19, Matthew 27, 19, uh, while Jesus is being questioned, 
this happens. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, he's in his judgment seat judging Jesus, his wife sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. But Pilate's wife, not a Jew, not personally familiar with Jesus in any way it would seem, has a dream. And in that dream, she's moved to go to her husband or send word to her husband who's actively trying Jesus for guilt of these accusations and says, husband, honey, you need to have nothing to do with this situation. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. I had a dream. I had a dream. Have nothing to do with this guy. And that dream caused suffering and turmoil and distress in me. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so as Pilate questions Jesus, uh, he questions him and then he sends him to Herod because he finds out he's from Galilee and he's like, oh, I don't want to deal with this guy, so go to see Herod. He goes to see Herod. Herod questions him. Jesus doesn't really say anything to Herod either. Herod's like, ah, go back to Pilate. Sends him back to Pilate. And then he's questioned again there with Pilate. Uh, and throughout that whole thing, we're told, which I'll walk through in a little bit for in a lot of great more detail, we're told that Pilate, after questioning Jesus, uh, he desires to release him. That Pilate, after questioning Jesus, he's been accused of all these things, he's been tried for these things, and after all of his questions, all of their conversation, Jesus' responses, which are few, uh, Pilate's desire is to release Jesus, for him to be declared innocent and set free. But Pilate's a bit of a coward. And so... In Pilate being a little bit of a coward and a man driven by the fear of man and desire for power, uh, there's an exchange that takes place. There's an exchange. So Pilate desires for Jesus to go free. He doesn't see any reason for Jesus to be killed. He doesn't see any merit to these accusations. And so he desires to release Jesus. But, like I said, he's a bit of a coward. So he doesn't just want to make a declaration and then let him go because he's afraid of the people. He's afraid that these powerful people over the Jews are going to stir up riots and all kinds of craziness is going to take place, and then Pilate's going to lose his job because he's the prefect or governor of this region. And if it goes all haywire and crazy and there's riots and all kinds of stuff, he's going to get fired or worse, killed for not being the good governor over this area. And so he's like, ah, I need to get Jesus off the hook somehow. How can I do this? And in Mark 15, verse 6, it unpacks this and how what's going on in Pilate's mind uh, in this moment. In verse 6, it says this, now at the feast, which is the feast of Passover, once a year, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Jesus uh, and he, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. In Matthew 27, 16 through 18, uh, Matthew tells it this way. And, there, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? 
Barabbas or Jesus, who you call the Christ? For he knew that this was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Pilate, desiring to release Jesus, confires what I imagine in him as a pretty like, like Loctite opportunity to get Jesus released. It's like, hey guys, you want this criminal, murderer, insurrectionist, rioter, or you want Jesus, who's not really done anything? I'll release whichever one you want, because I have a rhythm and a pattern of every single year at this time during Passover to release one prisoner that you want. And so Pilate thinks Jesus... Who's, who's been teaching a lot. He's made the religious leaders mad. Yeah, uh, they're filled with envy and rage and anger and hatred. But really, he hasn't created, hadn't broken any laws or committed any crimes. You want Jesus or you want Barabbas? Now, Barabbas has already been found guilty uh, of causing a rebellion, participation in a rebellion against the government, attempting to overthrow the Romans. He's been found guilty not only of participation in that insurrection, but of murder, and he's a convicted criminal who now sits on death row. So you have, you have Barabbas, his crimes have been made public, he's notorious, everybody knows who he is, and he sits on death row waiting to die by crucifixion for the crimes that he's committed. Or Jesus, who hasn't caused any harm, hasn't done anything deserving of death. And so surely, when Pilate gives them this opportunity to get Jesus off the hook and be released, they're going to choose Jesus over Barabbas. It would serve their nation to do this. You see, in this day uh, in time, if there was some form of a riot or insurrection where there was an unrest among the people, Rome would send in their army to come and punish and kill and imprison and oppress the entire region to beat them into submission. And so... Barabbas is somebody who has already done things that it puts their nation in threat of the army coming and in martial law inflicting harsh judgment, harsh punishment, and cruelty upon the Jewish people to keep them in submission. That Barabbas is actually a threat to their national, kind of, their people's security, their comfort, their well-being. He's also a threat to their very lives. He's a murderer. He's literally killed somebody. He's a murderer. So surely the, the crowd and the religious leaders won't put the whole region in jeopardy of the Roman army coming to squash some kind of a rebellion when this rebel leader is set free. Surely the Jesus to be released over a known murderer. Barabbas, not waiting on trial to be found innocent, already convicted, guilty, on death row, awaiting his death. This is Pilate's masterful plan to see Jesus released, to see to it that Jesus goes free and Pilate stays in prison and gets what he deserves. But Pilate's manipulative cowardice plan to see Jesus released fails. His plan to see Jesus released fails. In Matthew 27, 20, it says this, Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, 
which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And they cried out, stirred up by the religious leaders. Out of envy, they cried out. When he said, what do you want me to do with this guy then? They cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they kept shouting with urgency and demand and loud echoing booms and cries in Pilate's quarters, crucify him. And their voices prevailed over justice. And in Mark 15, verse 15, we see this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy justice. No, it's not what it says. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, which means beaten Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In Luke 23, as Luke tells the story in verse 24, it says, So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted, even though they were unjust. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will to be crucified. You see, as the story unfolds of Jesus on trial before the Roman prefect or judge or governor, Pilate, it's a moment where there's an innocent and there's guilty. There's no gray area here. There's innocent and there's guilty. And throughout this story, particularly the Gospel of Luke, um, we see the innocent on display regularly, 15 times. 15 times in this story, told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. 15 times, the innocence of Jesus is declared either verbally or in display in action or in desire. 15 times. In Luke 23, 4, this is in the earliest parts of the trial, Pilate declares, I find no guilt in this man. In Luke 23, 14, he says again after the conversation with them goes on, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. The pilot's pretty cut and dry here. He didn't do anything you said. He goes to Herod. When he comes back from Herod, Pilate says this in Luke 23, 15, Neither did Herod find him guilty, for he has sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's Pilate's words. In Luke 23, verse 16, he says, I therefore will punish him and release him. In Luke 23, 20, Pilate says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. That his desire was to release him. In Matthew 27, 19, we have this conversation with Herod's or with Pilate's wife, where she declares Jesus by dream to be a righteous man. 
in Luke 23, 22. We see this declaration by, by Pilate. And in a few sentences, this is packed filled with the innocence of Jesus. And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I've found in him no guilt deserving death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. In John 19.4, Pilate declares, He went out again before the crowd. Now Jesus is dressed up like a king with a crown of thorns. He's bleeding. He's covered in a robe after being scourged. He parades him out in front of them and says, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. In John 19.6, Pilate declares, When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You want to kill him? You go kill him. Because he's done nothing deserving of death. In Matthew 27.23, Pilate says, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And in Matthew 27, verse 24, at the end of this charade of trial and conversation and back and forth with the chief priest and the scribes and Pilate and conversation in the close quarters with Jesus and the message from Pilate's wife and all of this going on and this chaos and going to Herod and then coming back in all of these moments, the very end ends us here in Matthew 27, verse 24. And when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, that his declarations of the innocence of Jesus was gaining nothing. But rather than a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. That Pilate, standing before this mob of people, declaring, crying out for Jesus' death, him declaring repeatedly his innocence, takes a a basin of water, and publicly in front of them, symbolically washes his hands, saying, I am not guilty of this man's death, because I have repeatedly declared that he is innocent. And I'm washing my hands of this whole scenario. A symbolic declaration of the innocence of Jesus, and that he does not deserve death. And he says this, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourself. That Pilate, on repeat over this charade of a trial where these people are insistently going after Jesus' crucifixion and death, declares 15 times in words and in actions that Jesus is innocent of all their accusations, that he's found no guilt in them, and he does not deserve death. In this story, and in history, and in all of time, Jesus is the only innocent person. Pilate's not innocent. Herod's not innocent. The high priest and crowd aren't innocent. Barabbas is definitely not innocent. And you and I are not innocent. Jesus alone stands declared innocent. Who's the innocent one? Jesus.
And then there's the guilty. You have the priest and the council filled with envy, driving them to all sorts of mishandlings of the situation and the trial before Jesus. You have uh, the priest and the council stirring up the people, inciting a riot, putting at risk the entire region of the Roman army coming and suppressing this whole scenario by violence. You have them manipulating the crowds to see Barabbas released. You have Pilate who's driven by fear of the crowd and is a coward and his job is justice and he sets justice aside for peace. And he gives the crowd Barabbas, the guilty man, and he imprisons on death row Jesus, the innocent. You have Pilate who seeks manipulative ways of leadership to provide a maybe situation where They'll choose Jesus over him, over Barabbas. You have this moment where the the high priest says to Pilate, if you release Jesus, you're no friend to Caesar. If you release Jesus, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And he's manipulated by the crowd. That he makes an unjust judgment and punishes Jesus and lets a guilty man go free. He forsakes what's true out of fear of man. Pilate, he's not innocent, he's guilty. Barabbas, he's literally convicted on death row. That he's an insurrectionist. He's caused riot seeking the overthrow of the authorities over the government. And in that riot, murdered another person. He's he's thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He's notorious, which means this isn't something that happened in the secret of night and darkness. No, everybody knows Barabbas. Everybody knows who Barabbas is. He's notorious, which is not a good thing. Just clarify. It's not like, oh, he's notorious. Ooh, cool. No, notorious is a bad thing. (laughs) It's a bad thing. He's known to be a bad man. Guilty on prison. Barabbas is without a doubt guilty. He's been tried. He's been found guilty. He's a threat to their national security, to the security of the people, of Jew, the Jewish people, and he's a threat to their very lives because he's a murderer. He is guilty. But in this story, the guilty goes free. In this story, the guilty goes free. There's a prisoner exchange. Barabbas is released, and Jesus is imprisoned. Barabbas goes free off death row. Jesus takes his place on death row. Barabbas, who deserves to be crucified, the next day, alongside of the two thieves, goes free and Jesus takes his place on the cross in the middle on Golgotha. You see, this story probably stirs up a whole lot of thoughts and emotions and whatnot in you. Maybe it's those sense of injustice Uh, there's a right sense in which if you love Jesus, you hate this moment for Him. 
Because he's being mistreated. But this story is a type. which A type is a kind of story or writing to which there's a, a, a metaphorical representation of you or of someone else in the story. Uh, a lot of these Old Testament stories, like David and Goliath and, uh, or Joseph, uh, a lot of these moments, they're types, which means as we read them, God has written them into history and the Bible, intended to foreshadow and point forward as a type of who Jesus was. Jesus is the greater Abraham, the greater Moses. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who takes the place of Isaac. He is a, uh, those are types of that point us to Jesus. Uh, this story is a different kind of type because this story is not a type where Jesus is represented by any of these because he's actually there. Uh, it's a type of you and I. Which means as this story is told, as we look at it in God's word, we're meant to find ourselves in this picture and not in a great way. See, you and I aren't the unjustly treated Jesus. Despite the fact that there are moments and times where you've probably faced injustice. But in this story, you are not the unjustly treated Jesus. You're not the more and better just Pilate who's a better judge. No, you and I in this story are the guilty, convicted, notorious Barabbas awaiting death and punishment for, for our insurrection and rebellion against a holy God. See, you and I in this story are Barabbas, deserving, guilty, convicted, awaiting the punishment for our insurrection against a holy God. See, you and I are guilty of sin against God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty of sin. Romans 5.8 unpacks for us that but God, not but you were okay, but you weren't that bad. No, but God showed His love for us that while you were still sinners on death row, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus, like this actual historical moment where he takes Barabbas' place on death row, Jesus came to take your place. Jesus came to take your guilt. And Jesus came to take your sin upon him and die the punishment of death that it deserves for insurrection against a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares this. If you want to memorize a passage of Scripture that echoes and reminds you of the truth of the Gospel, it's probably this one. For our sake, He made God the Father, Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was innocent, but He was made guilty in our place so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That in the same way there's this great exchange where Jesus takes Barabbas' place, guilty, on death row. Jesus takes your sin, your guilt, the wrath of God towards your sin and insurrection against God, and He dies the death that sin requires in your place. You're Barabbas. And Jesus came to take your place so that you, guilty, could go free.
So for us, there's two scenarios here. Either you sit here today guilty of your sin, still under sin, remaining in it, on death row, awaiting punishment. Righteous and just punishment for your guilt of sin against a holy God. Your guilt of insurrection and rebellion against Him. Either you sit here today, in this room, in this moment, guilty under and for your sin, on death row, awaiting God's wrath for your sin in eternal punishment in hell. Or, you believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that He, the Father, sent His Son, Jesus, to take your place on death row, to take your guilt, to take your sin, to take your punishment, to die in your place, and to resurrect forevermore. And by faith alone in Him, you receive forgiveness of sin, a stamp of innocence despite your guilt because Jesus takes your punishment. He takes your place. Your Barabbas, Jesus goes to prison for you. Your Barabbas should be crucified. He's crucified in your place. So for you today, my encouragement is this. If you sit here still remaining in your sin, awaiting punishment for your guilt and insurrection against the holy God, that you would come humbly before God, believe the gospel that Jesus died in your place, and receive his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Today, walk free, like Barabbas walked out of Pilate's court, free. That you believe the gospel. If you've already believed the gospel, you've been set free from your sin and guilt, forgiven of it, wiped clean. But here's the reality. We regularly are confronted with the reality that you still sin. So do we need Jesus to keep dying and keep taking our place? No. He did that one sacrifice once for all. But the more we see our sin, the depths of our brokenness and sin, the more we see His grace. See, there's a danger, Christian, ahead of you of downplaying your sin. Of saying things like, ah, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I struggle here and there a little bit, whatnot. And not that your heart is totally depraved and need of the complete, complete restoration from God. That you don't want God in your sin. That you want sin. And He and in His Holy Spirit only has cultivated in you a desire for Him over your sin. You see, in the gospel, we don't have to be afraid of seeing our sin. Uh, there's a lot of churches out there in the world, a lot of preachers out there in the, world, in the world who will be like, oh, don't go to churches that make you realize that you're a sinner. Go to ones that tell you you're awesome. Well, here's the deal. You're not awesome. <laughs> you're Barabbas. Barabbas isn't awesome. But guess what? God is awesome. So awesome that despite the depths of your sin, He has taken them all. That your sin may be great, but His mercy is more like we sang. That we were insurrectionists, rebellion against God, guilty. That we were sexual sinners, forgiven by His mercy and grace. That we were haters of God's creation and people, gossips and slanderers, forgiven by His mercy and grace. That we were haters of God, shaking our fist at Him in every moment of rebellion and resistance against Him in our lives. Now, by His grace, turned lovers of God, embraced by His mercy and love. We were 
gluttonous, sensual, pleasure-seeking, adulterous, idol-worshiping people. But by His grace alone, Jesus took your place. If you've put your faith in Jesus, here's the truth of this. Yeah, all of those things were who you were. But by His grace, it's not who you are because you have been washed, you are being sanctified, you are justified by Jesus in your place and set free from guilt and the punishment for your sin. Why? Because Jesus took your place. That Jesus, by grace alone, through faith, takes your place as guilty and lets you, Barabbas, go free. That you and I, Barabbas, guilty of sin, by faith in Jesus, are set free. And the right response, the only right response, for someone who is truly guilty, who feels the weight of their guilt, who's been washed clean, declared innocent, and set free, is to let the gospel of Jesus eclipse our sin and lead our hearts to humble, bold, clear worship to a God who has made you, Barabbas, innocent and free. That our hearts should be overwhelmed by this sense of gratitude to move our hearts to or our eyes to tears. Because our God is so good, has such great love that us sinners, us Barabbas, have been set free because Jesus took your place on death row. The only right response for us is worship. To worship in contemplation and reflection. To worship through prayers of thanksgiving that He has saved you. To worship in declaration to declare that He has taken your place. To worship in confession and repentance that yes, I still struggle and I come humbly before my God and reminded that His grace and mercy is sufficient to cover all my sin. That I worship in surrender and obedience to Him. That we worship in singing declaring in song that our God sent His Son, Jesus, to take our place on death row so that we, guilty, could be set free. You see, Jesus on trial was silenced by love. Silenced by love for you. Silenced by love for Barabbas. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led before the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was silenced by love. He remained quiet when he could have very easily gotten off. But he remained quiet that he was silenced because he loved you enough to take your place. Barabbas, guilty. That he loved you enough to sit on death row and to be crucified in your place.
in the story of Jesus on trial, there's this beautiful exchange where the guilty go free. And it echoes the truth of the gospel that by faith in Jesus, you and I, guilty of sin, can go free. So let me pray for us. And we're going to respond by singing to our God who is so filled with love that He gave us His one and only Son to take our place. To singing to our King Jesus who remained silent and willingly took Barabbas, took His place, and willingly took your place. So Father, we come before you and we ask that you, in this moment, that you would overwhelm our hearts with how much you love us. That you would overwhelm our minds as we consider that Jesus took our guilt. And by faith in him, we go free and we deserve the full weight of your wrath. We deserve death. So God, would you overwhelm our hearts, our minds? Would you stir in us and move in us? In these moments where we sing, to praise you, to sing out to you, because we guilty people have been set free. Because your son Jesus took our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.